How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Imagine a world with no waste. When products reach the end of their useful life cycle, the materials are remade into another product of equal value. That's the vision that Bill McDonough and his co-author put forward eight years ago in their book, Cradle to Cradle. Now Mr. McDonough is trying to institutionalize Cradle to Cradle with a new institute that he and Governor Schwarzenegger christened in Silicon Valley last spring. Can consumption be a regenerative force for the earth and its people? Can capitalism really clean up its act? Can cradle-to-cradle theory be implemented in the real world at scale? We'll discuss these questions and more with Mr. Madonna and our live audience today in San Francisco. Among his many awards and accolades, Time Magazine has recognized Mr. McDonough as a hero of the environment. Please welcome to Climate One author and architect, Bill McDonough. Thank you, Greg. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, uh, PG&E for making this possible. And we've done work with them, and they're a terrific um, asset to this community here in San Francisco area. And um, we're very, very privileged to have had the opportunity to work together. Mainly, I'd like to thank Michael Braungart, my co-author and German chemist, for working with me on this cradle-to-cradle thinking and the chance to bring it out into the world. And here in San Francisco, we've had the privilege of working with NASA. Steve Zornitzer is here. We've just finished uh, uh, the design of a project that's underway, and I, I'm pleased to say that it just won the Green Government Presidential Award from GSA as the top innovative building in America for the government as inspiration. So we're pretty excited. Thank you for leading that. Um, we've also, I'd also like to thank Don and, and Bob Fisher from The Gap. Don has passed away, but... They gave us our chance when we were a small firm in New York to start working out here, and we did their corporate campus in San Bruno. It's now YouTube's headquarters. It's a giant roof of undulating meadow from the early 90s. We're excited that that has been such a, a pleasure to watch growing and be a habitat. Um, our friends at Google, where we work, uh, Recology, one of the greatest um, companies, I think, in the world. We're helping plan their facilities for the future, and they're seeing materials as nutrients, and that's a very exciting thing for, the, for San Francisco. And we work with the city of San Francisco now on these things, and UCSF is doing a new hospital, and we're helping with the material selection for the new UCF Medi- UCSF Medical Center at Mission Bay, a children's, women's, and cancer hospital that will look at materials so that they're healthy for children, women, and do not give people cancer. Um, and, um, and lastly, I'd just like to thank my friends at Vantage Point Venture Partners, a venture firm uh, in which I'm a a uh, venture partner, so we get to look at lots of new technologies. So thank you for being here. I want to talk tonight about design, and I'm a designer, and to me, design is the first signal of human intention. And as a designer, I have to ask the question, if, if our intention as a species at this point is to destroy the planet, then we're doing great. If that's our plan, we're doing gorgeous execution. But if it's not our plan, what is our plan? And I don't hear anybody talking about our plan. What we see is a de facto plan. We see that things are just playing out as they have, and if it's our intention, then we are destructive, and we adopt it as a species, a strategy of tragedy. And if we want to be intentionally, strategically tragic, we can continue to do what we're doing. But as a lot of people like to say, you know, insanity is doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. So the question for tonight, I think, is what is a strategy of hope? How do we allow the children to have a strategy of hope? And if all we can tell them is that our resources are going away, that our energy systems are polluting the climate, destroying the ocean, if that's all we can say, and then we say we have a population problem, and we look at a child being born in India or China or here, and we say, you know, you're part of a population problem. The second you look at a child and you say anything other than we love you, human rights cease to exist. 
So what I want to talk about tonight is the design for $9 billion. It's not okay for us to worry about the top $2 billion. It's all of us, and we're all in this together, and we need a new design. It's a big thing. Now, I had the privilege as dean of the University of Virginia School of Architecture to live in a house designed by Thomas Jefferson. And when you live in a house designed by Jefferson, he's your designer. And if you look at him as a designer, you realize that he saw himself as a designer, too. If you look at his tombstone, his last design, he only recorded the things he designed on that tombstone. It says, Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, which matured into the Bill of Rights, and father of the University of Virginia. That's it. Anything missing? Can you imagine being president of the United States twice? And it's not important enough to put on your tombstone. What he's recording are his legacies, his designs, his intentions, not his jobs. It's not his activities. It's what he left behind. That's what we should be looking at. If we look at the Declaration of Independence as a design treatise, what does it call for intentionally? It says we will seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can you imagine He's a 33-year-old. He writes it in 16 days. And what does he come up with? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. What does that mean? What is life, and why does it matter? What is happiness? Can you imagine the current Senate and Congress using the word happiness? It's hard to imagine. So if we look at a letter that he wrote to Madison in 1789, they were trying to decide what the term of a federal bond should be. And Jefferson thought it should be one generation. And his logic was this. He said, the earth belongs to the living. No man, by natural right, obliges the lands he owns or operates to debts greater than those that may be paid during his own lifetime. Because if he could, then the world would belong to the dead and not to the living. The world would belong to the dead. Is that our intention? Because that's what our designs look like. So what if we designed a world that belonged to the living? Well, then we can't continue doing the wrong things, even if we do them the right way. Because doing the wrong things the right way might even be pernicious. If you're a terrorist and you're efficient, you're worse. So efficiently doing the wrong things is not going to save us. Reducing our carbon, if we're still carbon doesn't deal with the fundamental issue. We do not have an energy problem. That's the problem. It's all carbon-based. That's the problem. It's a materials problem. We have a material in the wrong place. That's the design problem. We have carbon in the atmosphere. That's a problem. It belongs in soil, not in the atmosphere. We have carbon in the oceans. We now hear that 43% of the anthropogenic carbon dioxide produced by humans since 1850 is in the oceans. The pH historically was between 8.8 and 8.2. It's now at 8.06, and it's on on its way to 7.9 by the end of century, which means the oceans become carbonic acid, and we drop out the bottom of the food chain, making mollusks uh, so they can't form shells and dissolving coral reefs. If our intention is to change the climate, destroy the atmosphere, destroy our food chains, and fill the oceans with plastics, we are doing great. But if that's not the plan, what's the plan? So what we need to do is focus on what it means to be alive, to talk about liberty, and to talk about the pursuit of happiness. And we should design systems that support the things we want, not perpetuate the things we don't. We want to support the natural world. We're part of it. Well, what would that mean by design? Listen to this building assignment that we got from NASA and Steve. We looked at it and we said, you know, humans actually aren't that smart. I mean, we're talking rocket scientists here, let's face it, right? (laughs) And these are some of the smartest people in the world, of course. But just remember, before we get too big-headed about it, it took our species 5,000 years to put wheels on its luggage. We're not that smart. I mean, think about the design assignment of a tree. If I said to humans, design a tree, this is the assignment we got from NASA, and we worked out together. We said, let's design a building like a tree. Well, what does that mean? Oh, 
let's design something that makes oxygen, sequesters carbon, fixes nitrogen, distills water, provides habitat for hundreds of people, hundreds of species, uh, builds soil, distills water, uh, changes colors with the seasons, creates microclimates, and hopefully self-replicates. How are we doing? Now, how many buildings you know made oxygen lately? Right? The problem with growth in our conventional wisdom is that when environmentalists say growth is bad, what are they talking about? They're talking about asphalt as two words assigning blame. That's what we're talking about. We're destroying the Earth's ability to be photosynthetic, which is its design. Isn't that interesting? So this idea that we could design around a new goal is critical. But what is our goal? It's not going to be, let's be less polluting, let's be less unsafe, let's be less bad. Being less bad is not being good. It's being bad, just less so. It is not a double negative equals a positive. It's a value statement. Being less bad is not being good. If I left here in San Francisco and I'm on my way to Canada and I found myself headed for Mexico at 100 miles an hour, it's not going to help me to slow down to 20. I'm going the wrong way. Now, if it slows me down so I can turn around, that might be part of a legitimate strategy. Okay. But what we really need is a positive goal. Peter Drucker, the management guru, said it's a manager's job to do something the right way. But it's the executive's job to do the right thing. Because if you're doing the wrong thing the right way, you could be pernicious. What is the right thing to do at this point in history? We need a new design as a species. We are now the dominant species. 99% of the large mammals on the planet are under human management. We can change the climate. We can change the oceans. We can do all sorts of things. If that's true, then what is our intention? And how do we manifest that? So what is it the right thing to do? Well, why don't we start with life? We can talk about liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but let's talk about life first. What is life? What does it mean to be living? Well, if we look at the last century and we look for its great science, and we use it as a design instruction and as a poem, I look at E equals MC squared as a small poem. And I remember when I went and took physics at Dartmouth as an undergraduate, I remember going to my physics class, and my professor said, and why are you here? You're an art student. And I said, I, want, I have two questions, and they're related. I grew up in Japan as a baby. And my parents showed me Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I remember thinking, as a little kid, you know, how could people do this? It wasn't just the horror. It was also the physical reality of it all. And I wanted to know, how could this happen? And why was Einstein so afraid? As I grew up, I heard it. He was afraid. What was he afraid of? Well, just do the math. Has anybody done the math of E equals MC squared? Anybody here? Do the math. Start at the back. Look for the number. It's C. Very big number. 186,000 miles per second. Square it. It's approaching infinity. Really, really huge number. Well, therefore, if M is in any way a positive, as in one atom, E is almost infinite. That's why Einstein was afraid. One M, big E. Okay? Boom. But if we think about that as a poem for the planet, E is the sun. We have a nuclear reactor. It's a thermonuclear reactor exactly where we need it, 93 million miles away. It's eight minutes, and it's wireless. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, though it helps. Okay? But where are we going to get our energy? They sent the satellites up there. What did they do? They captured the sun. Good. Let's do that. Next, M. M is the earth, it's mass, it's minerals, it's materials, it's water, it's inorganic chemistry. M, Einstein did physics, chemistry. Well, if we take all the chromium out of South Africa and put it in our products and then distribute it around the world and toxify the planet while we throw it all away in little holes, future generations will look back and say, what were you thinking? You've poisoned us and we've lost this to our utility. So E is our income. It's the one form of income the planet has. We don't have mass income. We have occasional meteorite and some cosmic dust. That's about it. But we have energy income, and it's been accruing over the centuries as what? Fossil fuels. Interesting. And why? Because there's this other thing happening that doesn't have a letter that Einstein didn't do. It had to do with mysteries. It's called biology. It's called life. Life happens when energy interacts with mass. And then if we look at Crick and Watson discovering DNA in, in 1952, uh, 53, excuse me, 
um, they, they found what Crick later called the nature of vitalism. What he was looking for for nine years after discovering DNA with Watson in 63 was in an essay he delivered at the University of Washington in 62. He said, the nature of vitalism. What does it mean to be a living thing? And he said, in order to be alive, you have to have three characteristics. Growth. Growth. That's good news for business. Growth. Growth is good. Ooh, where would that come from? Growth is good. Think about it. Well, if you follow the laws of nature, growth is good. If you don't, growth is bad. Interesting. The second, you have to have free form of energy from outside the system. You have to have income to grow. Where does it come from? The sun. To be alive, you have to have an outside form of income. It comes free, and it's from the sun, right, typically. And then the third thing, this is what was ignored by so many people all these years. All we talk about is climate and carbon all the time. It was an open metabolism of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organisms and their reproduction. An open system of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organisms and their reproduction. So what if I could design a building that was like a tree? What if I could design a building that celebrated growth? We want more of them. What if I could design a building that used free energy from the sun? Thank you, NASA. And what if I could design a building that was made of an open metabolism of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organism and its reproduction? So what Michael Braugart and I are framing with Cradle to Cradle is not an invention. We think it's actually more like a discovery. It's a commonsensical aha. And what we say is that what Crick is describing is the biological metabolism. One thing's waste is another thing's food. There is no such thing as waste. We eliminate the concept of waste. In fact, we don't even worry about a negative statement like eliminate. We simply see everything as nutrition for the next generation. It's a regenerative world. That's the way it's designed. Why can't we align our design with that design? So the discovery is basically that there are biological nutrients, as Crick pointed out, but what we're saying is in the last 5,000 years since humans began to hammer on metal, we've created another metabolism. We call it the technical metabolism. It's all this stuff, the computers, the cars, the light bulbs, you name it. These are the technical objects of our, of our enjoyment. But if we design them cradle to grave, which is the paradigm of the first industrial revolution, basically fomented by northern Europeans, who, because of the climate, have to bury everything because nothing rots. I mean, we just came back from Iceland where we have our annual meeting on this, and if I left a banana peel out there, it'd still be there five years from now. You know, so you have to bury everything, including emotional things and so on. What if the first industrial revolution had been invented in India where they believe in reincarnation? Now, that would be interesting. So what we're looking at is what if we redesigned our industrial systems to recognize these two metabolisms? So... The biological things that we design, things that are going to braid, like our clothing, or things that wear off, like shoe soles. Why should the shoe soles of sneakers leave behind lead stabilizers for our children? Why should you jump off the curb and leave behind brain death? What kind of design is that? Right? This is something that has to go back to soil safely. It should be designed as a biological nutrient. Right? Other things, uh, plastics, metals, and so on, can be designed as technical nutrients. So the things we actually consume can go back to nature safely. The things that we don't consume, we're really customers of them. We want the service of them. Those should be designed to go back to the technical cycles on infinitum safely. And not just like the Europeans did where they banned lead in computers, and now they mine more lead in China because what they substituted for the lead when they said no lead is they substituted a combination of uh, bismuth, uh, tin, silver, copper, an amalgam that gets brittle, forms hairs, can start fires. They didn't say what to use. But bismuth comes with lead mining. So now we're mining more lead. So now there's a glut of lead, and the rivers in China are getting lead. The kids are getting brain death. They're sending the lead to Africa where it's putting gasoline. So the little kids in Europe don't see the lead they never saw, and the kids in China and Africa get brain death. Is that a good design? Is that our intention? What if we design the lead so that it never leaves the industrial system and computers go back to becoming computers and the lead never leaves the computer systems? That's much more interesting to us. That's an open metabolism of chemicals operating continuously for the benefit of the organisms. We call them technical nutrients. You see, lead doesn't know if it's a good or a bad. It's just lead. It's like a hammer doesn't know if it's good or bad. A tool, only value, is based on the intention to which it's put. 
So a hammer's not a good or a bad. If I hit you with it, it's a bad. If I build your house with it, it's good. So lead is not a good or a bad. It's just lead. If I put it in continuous cycles and closed loops in industry, it's not, it doesn't see the biosphere. If it doesn't see the biosphere, it's not a neurotoxin. It's a technical nutrient. See the difference? So we design things with, with biological or technical nutrients, reverse logistics. We want everything back either to the soil or back to industry. We want renewable energy, free energy from sunshine, because we don't have an energy problem. Solar income. Thousands of times more than we need. Let's get busy. We've got jobs here to do. We want clean water. We designed a process for a textile in Switzerland in 1993 where we eliminated uh, so many chemicals from their... They had about 250 chemicals they were using. We brought it down to 38, tested for our protocols. The water coming out of the mill is now uh, clean enough to drink. It's as clean as Swiss drinking water. What if textile mills had drinking water coming out of them? And this isn't efficiency. This is not like saying to the mills, reduce your water consumption. No. Because if I go to a textile mill in China and the river's black and the fish are dead and the kids can't swim, and I say, reduce your water consumption, so what? They're going to release their toxins in a more concentrated form. What we want is new design. We want to change those chemicals. We can do that. We know what to use. We have 18 ways to make textiles red without cadmium. This is silly. This is easy. Let's just do it. Then the water comes out. It's drinking water. It reduced the cost of the mill 20% to make the cloth. Think about it. Because you're less inventory, no regulations. See, a regulation is actually a signal of design failure from society. Society is saying to a textile mill, you release cadmium, a known carcinogen, mutagen, into that river, we'll tell you at what rate you can dispense death. They do risk assessments and say, what threshold can some kid be exposed to in their red shirt before they get sick? We say, use precautionary principle. Why would I release cadmium in the environment at all? Right? So it's a different design situation. We want clean water, not use less water. If you release drinking water, use as much as you want. You're a filter. It's no problem. And then we want social fairness. Now, we developed a uh, certification program to do this for our clients is an internal methodology to help our clients. We're redesigning furniture with Herman Miller, Steelcase, uh, Hayworth. We do carpets with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway as infinite technical nutrients. We have 1.4 billion pounds of carpet waste in America every year. 1.4 billion pounds. Wouldn't it be beautiful if it was infinitely reusable and safe and healthy? Not people getting up and telling you they're recycling their PVC carpets, which are you know, carcinogenic, potentially, and uh, full of plasticizers. Not those people being eco-efficient and doing the wrong thing the right way. No, we want the right stuff. Let's analyze that carpet to the parts per billion for ecological and human health. Let's give our kids nutrition when we abrade the carpet, not slow death in the name of eco-efficiency. See the difference? So if a regulation is signal design failure, we have the pleasure of working with the state of California and talking to a lot of the people there, and, um, and in the process, we realized that Michael and I realized that this was our opportunity for us to give our protocols to the public domain. And on, on May 20th at Google headquarters, we announced that we were giving over all of our protocols and intellectual property to a not-for-profit to be located here in the state of California in San Francisco. It's, it's uh, to be called the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute and will be the home of the certification of the protocols. And Bridget Luther, who is the president, is right there. We want to make Cradle to Cradle a public good and have it go around the world. Now, if I look at my buildings, and I'm an architect, and, and think about what I've done over my work, I started my first professional job out of Dartmouth was I worked for King Hussein in the Jordan Valley. And my job was to identify the sites and the technologies to use to house the Bedouins in the Jordan Valley because the Palestinians had all been moved to camps, horrible camps in the foothills. And the Bedouin had to stop being nomads because the borders with Iraq and, and Saudi had been shut. And so I lived with people in a Bedouin tent, and I couldn't believe it. I got there and I said, a black tank? You must be kidding, in the desert. And, um, but it causes convective currents. It gives you deep shade. Um, the, uh, it seals up tight as a drum if it rains and the factory that makes it for you follows you around and eats everything you can't it's a goat and gives you, gives you fur, uh, skins uh, wool butter, cheese flesh, etc unbelievable, one little animal wandering around behind you, doing all this 
And I couldn't believe the exquisiteness of this tent. And then I looked at mass uh, uh, buildings, mud huts, and all that kind of technology, and realized we had to bring back the domes. And we started a little dome school because they have no tensile materials. And I started thinking about mass transparency and membranes as the fundamental tools of human uh, shelter development. And then I went to Ireland in 77, and I designed the first solar heated house there with help from NASA. They sent me uh, uh, copper coated with emissive materials. And um, I built a solar house. It was silent. It worked beautifully. It had two simple dampers, gravity dampers, sitting in Greece. And I brought in a poet, which is the tradition in Ireland, before the people moved in. And, and I brought the poet in. I said, we have to write a poem about the house. That's their tradition. And the poet stood there for half an hour in, in silence in a little warm cottage in the cold, wet place. And at the end of half an hour, I was waiting for my poem. And he looked up and he said, this is a fierce commotion. That's my poem. <laughs> And in 1984, we did the Environmental Defense Fund and we, in New York, the first so-called green office, and we started looking at materials, and we asked manufacturers what were in their products, and they all said, it's proprietary, it's legal, go away. Uh, we then got hired by Don Fisher, and Bob Fisher did the Gap corporate campus. We won a competition here for a building with an undulating meadow in a place that had stormwater problems. And when we got to the city and they said, well, what about all these stormwater problems? And we said, what stormwater problems? There are no stormwater problems. There are stormwater opportunities to make habitat. So when the birds fly overhead and look down, they could say, oh, it's our people. They're back. For Oberlin College, we designed a building with David Orr, Professor Orr, using a site that we developed where the buildings and its parking lot make 13% more energy than the building needs to operate, and it purifies its own water, a building like a tree. At Ford Motor Company, saving them $35 million over conventional engineering. And in car speak, that's the equivalent of an order for $900 million worth of cars. Uh, we did the world's largest green roof, 10 and a half acres. It now is home for thousands of uh, different species of biota, including birds of all descriptions. And they saved $35 million, CapEx, day one. At, for Ferrer, pharmaceutical company in Barcelona, we're designing a building now. The floor plans are tile patterns of, of safe tile without any heavy metals, uh, halogenated hydrocarbons, and so on, of, that are the wings of the endangered butterflies of Barcelona. And in the atrium, which is 15 stories, we will uh, have the chrysalis of, from the zoo of the ancient butterflies. And every week, every seven days when they hatch, we will invite the children of Barcelona to the building to watch the release of the ancient butterflies, buildings that restore biodiversity. Why not? Why not? And for NASA, as I mentioned, an inspirational building for the federal government. Thank you for the opportunity. So our trajectory here is just to be more good instead of being less bad. And we're expanding our work to design for 9 billion people. As we design light fixtures and we look at the indium, there's only enough indium in the world to light 2 billion. This is what Michael calls an endangered mineral species. We've got to preserve that for future generations. We want the bulbs back. We're not here to throw stuff away. Where is away? Does anybody want to point to it? We've been throwing stuff away as if there's an away. There is no way. We're all indigenous to this planet. And what does it mean to be indigenous? It means you're not going away. That's what it means. So we're going to be here. And we've got to take care of each other. Do you realize that the Pakistanis are now suffering one of the greatest uh, natural disasters against humans in the history of the Earth? 17 million people have been displaced, and the amount of aid that's been sent to Pakistan in this period of time relative to what was sent to Haiti, 1.2 million, is 140th. 17 million people in desperate trouble every minute, and we're sitting here talking. This is a design problem. We're moving on that now. This is one of our biggest projects. We're taking it up immediately and we'll start delivering on this uh, daily soon. Now, this is not easy to do. Why? Because it's politics. Well, if we don't design without regulation, we don't have to chase people and beat them with sticks. What if we do designs that are so opportunistic that we, it's like creating carrots big enough to use as sticks? And if you're an idiot and you can't take advantage of it, then we'll beat you with sticks. But hey... In the meantime, take advantage of this opportunity. Let's get on with this thing. It's going to take business to do this. Governments can't do it. Copenhagen can't do it. As Bridget Luther says, we're going to change the world one product at a time. Every product, renewably powered. Do it that way. Watch 
as Walmart says, let's do this. Watch as China says, let's do this, etc. Every product, every day, granular. And what does this mean? Charles de Gaulle was asked what it was like to be the president of France. Remember what he said? He said, how do you run a country with 400 kinds of cheese? Right? Well, we want 400 kinds of French cheese. In biology, we want diversity. We want language. We want culture. We want difference. We want celebration of the individual. We want liberty to be, to exist. We want the right to exist. And if we look at the history of rights and we see Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, 1776, right? And what happened? That was for 6% of the population. That was it. White, male, landowning Protestants, period. Okay? And then we look at the history of rights. We go to suffrage. Welcome aboard, ladies. We had the Emancipation Proclamation in the 1860s. Uh, then we see uh, uh, Civil Rights Acts in the 60s. And then we see the Endangered Species Act, 1973. Do you see what's happening? We're moving towards the idea that we give some other species other than humans the right to even exist. Isn't that something? Where do we go from there? That's our legacy. So our job is not easy. We want diversity in biology, but not in technology. In technology, we need coherency. We don't want 400 kinds of French plastic. We won't be able to recycle it. We need coherent polymers, coherent metals, all in safe, closed loops that don't destroy human and biological health. So the fundamental question I'd like to end with is how do we love all the children of all species for all time? That's the design question. And our goal has to be simple. It's a delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, water, soil, and power, economically, ecologically, ethically, and elegantly enjoyed, period. When Jaime Lerner, the mayor of Curitiba, was, had complaints from his citizen, citizens that children from outside the city limits were using the city's libraries, and parents complained that those parents in those poor, poor, poor places had their children using the city's libraries, which were paid for by their taxes, and they should stop them. You know what his answer was? He said, let's build more for them. When you start to love the children, you have to love all the children, not just your children. Because if those children grow up hating the city, they will destroy the city. And so I say to us as designers, if the children of the world, because we're not willing to share our intelligence with them, this generation to the next, if they grow up hating the world, they will destroy the world. And that is a big design problem. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. That was fantastic. We need just a brief technical pause here to make sure we get the cameras reset. We're okay. Um, Bill McDonough is the co-author of Cradle to Cradle. I'm Greg Dalton. He's our guest here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth. Thank you, Bill, for your comments. Uh, I'd like to to pick up on the the uh, Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute that, that you mentioned that you is getting going here in, in California. Um, you mentioned that you donated the intellectual property. And how will that work? I mean, how, how will the certification process work? One of the critiques, I guess, of the previous way was that it was a little bit of a black box. Will this be open and transparent in terms of the, the protocols for how a company gets a product certified? Absolutely. And what we had before were, was a way of helping our clients get registered in their improvement. It was an internal process and wasn't really a public thing. It was a private certification. Um, and we agreed that it really should be a public good because we think it is valuable. And we looked for ways to give it away, but we didn't want to just give it into the web because we have thousands of chemicals databased for their positive effects, not just negative. And we didn't want to just release that and have it turn into something used by hacks to make a mess of it. So um, the nice thing about the, releasing it now to the Institute is that we can give it over in a coherent way that can be part of the public good and public domain. And the black box part of it was, had a lot to do with the fact that we have to maintain secrecy agreements in the chemicals industry because working with our clients, you know, we need to know everything down to the parts per billion. And so um, when a client says, here are our suppliers, and the suppliers won't tell you what's in their ink, 
then we can't certify the product. So, because we don't know what it is, it's undefined. And then if the ink manufacturer says, we're not going to tell you what's in our product, we just tell our client, don't use their ink. It's that simple. And then the forces of commerce come to bear. And uh, we sign secrecy agreements, and we get to look at their formulas down to the parts per billion. And if they pass muster, we can move the information to the client, not the data, just that we've reviewed it and it meets our criteria. So that's what's been given over. And uh, so people will be able to bring products to assessors all over the world. We're training people to replace us. So there'll be assessors like accountants you know, all over the world who know how to deal with the cradle-to-cradle protocols. And then they can assess products everywhere, and they will be sent to the institutes for their certification. And they'll pay to get this certification? Companies yes. will pay to get this product certified? Yeah, they have to pay the assessors. They can use their own people. And then they'll pay a nominal fee at the institute for the registration of their product in the databases of certified products. And the idea being that over the years, there'll be institutes in most countries and uh, thousands of assessors and we're going to have to trust everybody. It's like taxes. We're basically saying, everybody, you know, check out your stuff, report on it, make it transparent, and put it on the web. We're going to make everybody put their information on the web, make it live. And if they meet their goals, they get stay certified, and they, and they have to improve their product constantly. And if they stop doing that, they can lose their certification. So I believe previously you, you certified 160 or so products. How do you think about this, 400 now. 400 now, okay. How do you think this will scale, and, and why did you do this in California? We did in California because if you look at the history here, there's a history of like caring about things like green chemistry. The green chemistry initiative in the state of California is unique in the world. Um, pretty astonishing. Uh, uh, things like that. And the other thing is as we go into the next elections and things like this, what we do is like super uh, popular with Republicans, which is good. Because if you stop and think about it, uh, what we've done is we're like a trim tab on a super tanker. I don't know if, you know, uh, a super tanker cannot be turned by a wheel because the rudder is six stories tall, and you can't turn that. Right? You, so what they do is they put a little rudder on the big rudder, and then they turn the little rudder, and that, that, that's like us. We're a little business, and we point the direction for big business. They go there. And then the big rudder, which resists it, you know, a bunch of mules in the company or something, you know, and all of a sudden this big rudder turns, and then the whole ship turns in the direction you pointed. So it's a little business. It's been advising huge businesses. And we're doing probably the most environmentally sensitive work in the world, but it's just little business and big business. We have never used a regulation. We've never used a government grant. And we've never used foundation other people's money. That should be interesting to Republicans, right? On the other hand, for Democrats, hey, this is the highest level of environmental performance you're going to see anywhere. Renewably powered, clean water, social fairness. Uh, uh, and profitable businesses that reduce costs. So, so who's got a problem with this? This is common sense. I'd like to have you respond to a, a phrase in the current, the October issue of, of Consumer Reports that says, in May 2010, after jewelry containing cadmium was reportedly found in Walmart stores, Walmart said that it would voluntarily adopt European safety standards for cadmium and other heavy metals. So two key words there, voluntary and the European higher standards. Is that the right way to go? I think it's very important for them to say things like that for a lot of reasons. One is that, um, you know, the problem with the cadmium was cadmium is something like a thousand times more toxic than lead. So is this an issue? You bet. And, but what happened is the Chinese apparently, when asked, why did you use cadmium? They said, well, they told us we couldn't use lead. I mean, nobody told them what to use. You see, that's a problem. The EU banned lead, right? And the EU banned lead, right. right. And so nobody told the electronics what to use as solder. They just said no lead. So I think on that side, it's, it needs to be a much richer mix. We need to go ahead and say these things are of concern. But the problem is, you know, there's nothing wrong with cadmium. See, if you put cadmium in the solar collector, like cadmium telluride solar collector, and you know where it is, and you take responsibility for it. And you say, whenever you're finished with that solar collector, I want it back because I own the cadmium. I own the responsibility for that. It's a technical nutrient, right? If I put it on a child as jewelry, it's a toxin. So we need that fundamental distinction. So one of the tricky parts of, of the European legislation is that it's, I don't think, um, understands the whole system's issue about these materials. It just simply says, watch out for this. And I think we have to be very concerned about that in all these regulatory situations where we just ban something, but we don't really talk about the positive lists. So, for example, under dose and duration toxicology, somebody might say cadmium in a red shirt can be used at a certain level 
as a dye because it's below a threshold of giving you cancer. Our issue is it's in the biosphere, it's on your skin, it might get thrown at landfill. Why are we putting carcinogens in the biosphere? So we have 18 ways, we have the positive lists we call them. We have 18 ways to make any textile, polyester, cotton, hemp, whatever you want to make, it doesn't matter. Well, we can make it bright red without cadmium. Why wouldn't we do that? It's cheaper, it's smarter, and you can drink the water that's coming out of the factory. Whereas if it has cadmium in it, you, you wouldn't want to touch it. We, so, we have this like tendency to, to regulate by chemical by chemical, toxin by toxin. Right. With no toxin context. Has, wow. and there's a law for every toxin, and then a bureaucracy grows up around that right. toxin, and it, it tends to be very fragmented. Right. Uh, but you said something, uh, responsibility, which is producer responsibility. Right. Uh, so you're okay with lead in a computer as long as the computer maker takes that right. uh, computer That's back. That's what we proposed starting in the 80s, yeah. But Silicon Valley's been very reluctant to extend producer responsibility. Uh-huh. They say it's the consumer, we sell it. Uh, there's free recycling. You see a little bit now, HP and others sort of taking back uh, yep. toner cartridges, that sort of thing. Right. So are you going to push on producer responsibility? Because that's really where, where your theory uh, hit, hits some conflict, where, where the companies don't want to take responsibility. For I the know. Device. It's sort of amazing. Isn't it? It's one of the hardest things we have to tackle. And, but it's fun, though, because if you think about it, I remember we were meeting with a, an important uh, shoe company and a long time ago. and um, Swish. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, Nike has been fantastic. I designed their European headquarters. And after we, we started designing that, we, got through, we won that bid to design it from Nike. Uh, they said, you know, let's talk about shoes. And we did. And they've been fantastic. You should know this. They are, they've done deep chemistry. They're really serious about this stuff. So all, fair play to them. But one of the points that we were trying to make about extended producer responsibility was we said, well, you know, you should be taking your shoes back. And people would say, well, what do I want with this old pair of shoes? You know, it's, it's like a liability, not an asset. This thing's going to cost me money to get, you know, redeployed as, you know, playground floor or something. And the stuff's not designed for that. So it's really problematic. But our point to them was, look, and we make it to all of our suppliers and, and our, our clients, and you should see the ones that are coming around. It's fantastic. Like Berkshire Hathaway with Shaw. I mean, they just love this because that market really cares about these things. And so you have to work in these different markets. Isn't it interesting that there's a U.S. Green Building Council, because we all started in architecture and got this thing rolled out. We had 90,000 members. But there's no U.S. Green Product Development or Design Council. Where are the industrial designers? What have they been doing? You know, we're out there trying to do our best, even if we're just being less bad. But these people haven't even thought about it. They're brain dead. It's astonishing. It's like too much exposure to cadmium or something. So, (laughs) no, I'm serious. They're just not dealing with it. But if you really stop and think about it, think about this. If I come in with an old pair of shoes, and I say, here are the shoes, take them back. And you're going, no, 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 you must be kidding. You look at these companies, they don't make anything. It's all offshored. They don't make anything. What they are are marketing and design companies. That's what they are. And 75% of their budgets are marketing. Now, you're telling me that you're selling somebody a pair of shoes, $75 of which is basically attributable to marketing, and you're afraid when somebody comes back and says, here's your old shoes, I'd like a new pair. I mean, what did you do before? You sold them the pair of shoes and waved goodbye and say, I hope you don't go to Puma or Adidas. Bye. Why would you wave goodbye to your clients and your customers? You know, you want to create a family where people get involved in recycling stuff, and it's fun. And the, every time we do it, the company gets better. That's a story. That's what we need. In some industries, I heard about this today from a reporter that uh, uh, air conditioners, for example, rather than buying an air conditioner, uh, selling a product, yeah. they're trying to sell a service. Exactly. So, they, so that you don't, I mean, you yeah. don't buy an air conditioner, you basically... You buy cooling. You rent cool air. Exactly. And that that company then takes that back. Yeah. And in that kind of model, where people rent services rather than yeah. buy products, then it makes a little more sense so for that's the what we producer in responsibility. Yeah, that's but, what we proposed that in the... 80s, and that's what's coming about. See, what's nice about that is now it's in the interest of the company to make their high-quality products. Yeah. See, so they're going to want to use gold. Yeah, because they own them. They, wanna, they don't want to have to take them back. They're going to use gold coatings on connectors and things like that because they don't want to have them come back because it's a cost. They might make a cell phone that lasts more than 18 months. Whatever. It works yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Bill McDonough is the co-author of Cradle to Cradle and is our guest here today at Climate One. Uh, let's talk about eco-cities. Is there any eco-city that has really lived up to its promise so far? This is a tough question because what we're looking at now, we're about to start a project with San Francisco, and we're very excited about that on this front with the mayor. Uh, we're, we're in great discussions now on San Francisco in this context, and um, it's been really hard. I mean, uh, the cities in China, 
um, Mazdar. I don't know if you saw the one in Abu Dhabi that was so ambitious, it's had to re restructure all of its goals because they, they realized they couldn't manifest what they were hoping to be able to do and things like that. So um, these, are, these things are not easy. The, uh, the movement, I think, is going to be what we call an essay of clues. You know, and as we've been along, we've learned as we've gone, we've stumbled here and, and risen there and do all sorts of things. And it's like um, Jefferson said when, when he brought in the University of Virginia and he had these 10 pavilions for the professors and then the students in between. I lived in one of those pavilions. And um, Jefferson was asked why the 10 professors that he brought in to inhabit these buildings to start the university, the first institution of higher learning, public in America. And, and they were all, and they, they came at the legislature in Richmond and said, you know, how can you get these 10 people? All they do is argue with each other. And he said, of course they do. That's the point. He goes, education requires the fierce clash of ideas. Interesting. And, and that's what's happening with the cities. We're seeing clues everywhere. And one of the clues that we're working on is how to make cities part of the biological organism. The premier of China announced that, that um, the Chinese cities with current development would destroy 20% of Chinese farmland by 2020. They would lose 20% of their farmland. They don't have a lot of farmland. They just China. pave it over, build housing, sure. They build buildings. And so we're looking at how buildings can become uh, farms on the roofs. And so we're designing uh, whole protocols for how cities can become, from the air, part of the landscape. And, and all the organisms of, of, you know, the gray water goes to the roofs for watering plants. And the waste treatment plants become nutrient management systems. We found technologies to take out the methane, to take out the nitrogen, to take out the struvites, the phosphates. This is very important because China last year captured the world phosphate market by collapsing the price of phosphate, and they went out and leased and bought all the phosphate mines in the world. So if our cities don't become fertilizer factories, we're going to be starved for nutrients uh, in our cities. And so why shouldn't our cities take our poop and turn it into nutrient management? Because if we can take out, which we figured out how to do, these nutrients at cost-effective ways, we, have, we can produce a 12% return on this fertilizer for, this, for what used to be a sewage plant, now a nutrient factory, and, and then return it to the farmers. Then they grow the lettuce again, we eat it, and back goes the cycle. That's what cities have to do. They have to become part of the open metabolism of their support for their citizens. One of the Chinese eco-cities that you were involved with, Huang Bayou, didn't pan out as planned. Well, that's you... not a city. That's a village. Village. What did you learn from, from the trying to I learned a lot that? there. We, we designed a little house out of straw that the local villagers could build themselves. And, um, and then the mayor, I guess he is, developer, went ahead and just built 40 of them in barracks-like rows. And, and we, we designed them so they'd be built by the villagers, and they would do capital. You know, they would invest in themselves and figure out how to do capacity building. Mm -hmm. And he went ahead and got outside builders to do it in a hurry because he wanted to please Beijing. So we had to just walk away from it early and just quickly. But we got, you know, attacked for, like, allowing this little barracks-like thing to pop up. And... I didn't say anything because I didn't want to embarrass anybody. It would have embarrassed people in Beijing who had been pushing him to get this done in a hurry. So it was, it was just a lesson learned, a big time for me. Well, lots of Westerners and Western companies have learned tough lessons in China. Well, you've got to hold um, on to your principles and don't let somebody run off with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to invite members of the audience to uh, line up at the microphone. Uh, actually, behind uh, uh, Brandon back there in the check shirt, we'll, we'll have the... Uh, We'll line up behind Brandon, and then we'll try to get through the line. I have two quick questions to uh, ask uh, before then. Uh, Bill McDonough is co-author of Cradle to Cradle, my guest here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, who's an architect that maybe one that we haven't heard of that you find really inspiring today? Oh, that you haven't heard of? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think um, you may not have heard of him, but I mentioned him at the end of my talk. Is Jaime Lerner. Um, he's an architect. He was the mayor of Curitiba starting in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but he just has this, had this sense of what it means to be very practical. He had a, you know, basically developing country, 600,000 souls under his um, uh, influence, in a sense, as their mayor. And um, he just tried to figure out how to love all of them and make the city a great place to live. And it's now 2.7 million and has one of the most advanced transit systems in the world. They get a lot of uh, press. They do. Press rapid and that's and, a and designer. Rather than building a big mausoleum for books downtown, he yeah. built lots of... Um, Little libraries, yeah. What's a building that you find really exciting, other than the, the one that you're not doing for NASA and others? What's one that you think we ought to really know about, a real exciting building that's sort of pushing the envelope on? Well, I think if you look here at, at your institute here that Renzo Piano did, 
The California Academy of yeah, Sciences. The Academy right. of Sciences. I mean, it's fantastic because there's all these essay of clues going on there. He's got a cornice that's solar collectors and, you know, green roofs and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of clues going on in that building. Yeah. Um, we're seeing a bunch of buildings in Europe that are very exciting for us. And, and a lot of them are, I think the cradle cradle thing that excites us is how much fun it is. I think that's really the way to look at it. Uh, we're seeing buildings that are leasing their windows. This is something that Michael has helped a company work with. And that's great. They, they're leasing tra- transparency. Isn't that great? So the window company, which has to use toxic metals to do these coatings to make them efficient, is saying, oh, wait a minute. We're responsible for all that. So when these windows are going to be replaced by a better window at some point in the future, we'll bring it to you, and we'll take the old ones back because we know what to do with materials. And it's not because materials. solar energy is being generated by a thin film on the windows. It's not in their case, it's energy efficiency. But okay, most of these low-E windows are all coated with metals, and they should be responsibility of the glass companies, of course. Interesting. Yes, sir, let's go to audience question, please. Hi, Bill. Good to hear you talk again. Um, a local question, an international question, locally. Pick one. What's up your design sleeve since you're building in Mission Bay and uh, Moffett Field, and by 2040 or 2050, it looks like they're going to be underwater if things keep going the way they're going? Yeah, that's why we're working in Holland. Um, we're trying to get a sense of what's coming at us. Um, you know, working with the Dutch and watching them work with the natural world when the natural world represents such a threat has been fascinating because the Dutch are very pragmatic people. And so they look at this and say, well, we're going to have to suffer it ourselves. Think about them. They're already underwater. Okay. So I think we're going to have a phenomenal issue here in terms of what kind of infrastructure we're going to have to build to protect our our um, existing uh, capital assets. It's going to become a massive issue. When I came here today and looked around, you know, just the coastline here is going to change dramatically. And it's amazing when you think about all these years where we've been worrying about estuaries and this little bit and that little bit. We're about to build seawalls, folks. You know, it's going to get really big. The world is going to change. We're going to have to come together to understand what it means to continue to develop as humans in the natural world and how we're going to support nature and how it's going to support us. And so I think we have to go to the, the Dutch and seek, a, seek counsel. Next question. Thank you. Uh, hi, Bill. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sudeep Motipali Rao. Um, and Greg, thank you so much for... I think the Commonwealth Club uh, has lived up to its uh, uh, fundamental principle inspired by uh, Mr. Adams about... Uh, Appreciate the, the compliment. So let, what's your question for Mr. Setting the truth free. I, okay. I appreciate the, the urgency, uh, but I just wanted to pause for a moment and urge the audience and here and also on the Internet that uh, uh, what Bill has shared right now is uh, a template for success for the country as a whole and uh, its potential if uh, all the investors in Wall Street and others in the, in the country can listen that uh, here we have defined a template for how to make our economy move forward from where we are. Thank you. And your question for Bill is? Um, uh, You've been asked a question, Bill, about uh, uh, eco-cities. Can you please consider, I just came back from uh, Burning Man, uh, that that is an eco-city. Came back from where? Burning Man. From Black Rock City. Burning Man, yeah. Uh, Black Rock City in the desert uh, at NASA, at um, Nevada. And uh, the Bureau of Land Management is doing an excellent job of uh, managing with these people. And uh, they go from two months before uh, Labor Day weekend and uh, start uh, two months before and uh, two months after Burning Man. And it's an eco-city that forms and then it uh, goes back to its original state. So I just want to consider your thoughts. Would you ever consider going to Burning Man to observe? uh... Uh, Thank you. My name is Sudeep. I'm a designer in San Francisco. I'm from the land of Chile's in New Mexico and Andhra Pradesh, Thank South you. India. Thank, Thank you. you. Have you been, Bill? No, I haven't. Do you want to go? <laughs> I think it sounds like uh, what... Lots uh, of Googlers go. Well, I, your clients uh, no, go I, for I, sure. It sounds amazing to me. I'm, I'm always up for an anthropological field trip. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Thank you. Hi, I'm Haley Mahler, and I'm an undergraduate at UCLA. I have kind of a slightly more concise question, which is, um, I recently saw The End of Suburbia, and you expressed in that film that, um, that suburbia is obviously a huge design problem that we have. And I'm curious as to, I know there's a lot of hope for how things can be designed for the future, but for things that have already been built and conceived of, 
what do we do with them, and also where do students fit into this? Great. Um, well, um, one of the things that I think we have to do immediately is adopt a tone of great humility because this, as I pointed out with the cheese, is not going to be an easy thing to do. So what we're looking at, if you, if you take a look at suburbia, the issue would be um, how do we honor the rights of people to life, liberty, and happiness, pursuit of happiness at all stages of life? And what's fascinating is if we come up with one design solution for everybody, i.e. suburbia or something like that, we're not taking advantage of the richness of life itself. And so for a lot of students, for example, you know, they want to wear black and find mates. So they're not going to suburbia, let's face it, right? So they, we need cities for these people, right? Uh, and then as you get older, we need cities for people who want to be in society as they get older. They should walk out the door and be in a cafe society. Things like that, not hold up in some file cabinet out on some cul-de-sac. So, you know, there may be a moment for suburbia for young families that have a couple of kids and want to go out and pretend they're little British farmers with their tractor and garage. It looks like a barn. But, you know, that's for certain people at a certain phase of life. And we should really just celebrate everybody and try and figure out how to, how to re-manifest this stuff and do an optimization over time. But if our cities, you see, could turn into farmlands on the roofs, and all of a sudden there's this whole thing going on about pure air and silence. Imagine a city full of silent cars. I mean, that'd be fun. We'd have to give them a little sound, you know, so you don't get run over, you know, or something going down the street. But, um, you know, just to reimagine this. What if our food, you know, we're looking right now at vertical greenhouses and things like that, and we're designing a restaurant where where the lettuce goes right by your table as it grows, and you pick it right there, uh, you know, like that, for the fun of it. I mean, these things are fun, too. But I, I think if we saw, you know, cities as organisms and made them really fabulous, people would be attracted to the city. I don't, I don't think it's going to work to just say no to something. It's like the problem about being less bad. I mean, we were looking at ice cream containers, and somebody said, you know, we want chlorine-free ice cream containers. And we said, the problem is that you still got these toxic coatings and inks. and stuff. The thing can't be a biological nutrient anyway. You just want to be chlorine-free. If you just want to sell what you're not, think about how perverse that sounds. You're selling what you're not, like chlorine-free ice cream. You know, what is that? He's like, we just said you might as well say plutonium-free and have it over with. It doesn't cost you anything, and you're, you're selling what you're not. You know, you're not plutonium. Okay. But... Really, I think we need to make the cities more attractive. I think that's one of the big keys to this. And then, you know, we can, we can slowly get people to realize how delightful that prospect is. Our guest today at Climate One is architect and author Bill McDonough. Next question, please. Hi, uh, this is Robin Poirier. It, it sounds, with all this celebration of uh, people, that maybe you should go to Burning Man. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> but, but aside... I've been invited a bunch of times. It's just time. I have kids. Um, So I work for a certification organization, and my question uh, is to you and also to Bridget, uh, although she can't reply, about how uh, the new certification program will work with other already existing certification programs, Uh, for example, like Ecologo, which Mm -hmm. is currently focused in in Canada primarily, but also certifies products in the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, and also the the Greenie Energy Program, which certifies uh, use of renewable energy, um, and also um, ULE, uh, UL Environment, which is now starting to certify uh, through, uh, they just recently uh, purchased the Eco Logo uh, or Terra Choice program, which uh, I, I believe that will become more international. Um, and so I, I do, in my current job, see a lot Thank of... Thank you. Yeah, so there, there's lots of other labels, uh, lots of other green labels. Oh, I think that's a really great question. Um, you know, I think what we'll do is try and uh, integrate with all the different certification programs that we can, because there's no point in replicating effort. Uh, the cradle-cradle certification is probably, I would consider it, as we've seen, one of the most robust from a chemical perspective. We have very serious parts per billion, parts per million assessments going on in chemicals, and it's about transition. So we, we define and improve. And so that's, it's a transition. It respects the need of business to be staying in business while it makes the changes. That's fundamental. So you're not just saying, I certify like the best of the worst. You know, there are certification programs that say, oh, I'll certify this paper towel because it has the most recycled content. The problem is it's still chlorine. It's still dead rivers. 
et cetera. You know? So, yeah, it's the best of the worst. But is that what we want? No, let's go for more detail. Uh, we don't see a certification program around our reverse logistics perspective, which I, we think is fundamental. So it's not just saying this computer is better than that because of some chemical thing. You know, they all have to get good now. We have to deal with the bromines. We have to deal with the heavy metals and how they're deployed. So we have that element. We have renewable energy, but that doesn't mean we can't work with another certification that's focused on energy. Of course. It could be integrated beautifully. Um, clean water. There are plenty of NGOs. There's water stuff, you know, that is really critical. I mean, we worry about fish, but we don't have sustainable fishery in cradle-to-cradle certification, you know, but we do want... It'd be nice to have certified fish, sure. So, like that. And social fairness, we don't have the infrastructure to do those assessments, but we would honor the institutions that do. So our job is just to be there as a resource for everybody and plug in, and our hope is that there'll be enough people who say, I, I would prefer it this way. And at the same time, there'll be enough NGOs getting together to say, let's all work together. That's going to be a key element. We have to share this stuff. That's the point. So... Uh, we have about four minutes left and a bunch of questions, so quick questions, quick answers. Let's try to get through these. Yes, sir. Hi there. My name is Edward West, and uh, I see a lot of the same challenges that you're seeing and uh, the way that we're destroying our earth by design to a certain extent. Part of my response to that challenge has been to create uh, an electric motorcycle company and a company that also makes high-performance electric drive systems to advance vehicle electrification. Right. It's called Mission Motors. And uh, I care deeply about the mission and values laid out in Cradle to Cradle and as implemented in, by the GPII. And our products are composed of hundreds of materials uh, from dozens of countries. And to comply with the GPII is very daunting, to say the least. Um, do you have any tips for a small startup company who cares deeply about um, the mission and values uh, as laid out by your organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. We need to, uh, 30 seconds. Okay. First of all, it's going to be C2C uh, PII because we're changing it from green products to cradle to cradle. Uh, that was signed in Iceland, witnessed by the president of Iceland uh, a couple weeks ago. It was pretty fun. So um, anyway, my answer to your question is uh, this is for everyone. And right now, we're developing the version three of the uh, certification, which will be adding in lots of complexity like nano and GMO and electronics and things like that, because we have a, we have a need to go there. Uh, but what you need to take spirit from is if you look at Steelcase, for example, they have gone nine layers deep through their supply chain, uh, getting down to the parts per billion. It can be done. And the most important thing is that you signal your intention. And so cradle-to-cradle uh, innovation allows you, we have a website protocol that you can use, and it'll be available, uh, which is to send messages to your entire supply chain. And you can just say, anybody who's got a PO with you gets this message. Boom, 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 boom. And what'll happen is, and that's what we found with our clients, is that industries, especially the chemical industry, they're very interested in this, think about it. it. It sends out all these signals, and all of a sudden your company becomes this catalyst for all these people going, what is that? You know, what, what is it? And then you see co- companies like Walmart. I sit on Walmart's external advisory board. I'm, you know, a very interesting level. I report to the vice chairman on these issues. And, um, and if you see a company like Walmart, which is now developing their sustainability index with the sustainable, sustainability consortium, all these other companies coming here, when, when the commerce gets out there and just says, we want it like this, Walmart is a demand engine. They don't make anything. But when they say we want, watch the world start to wiggle, you know? And so mission motors, you get out there and you say, I want, and you watch the world wiggle. Now, it may just be a little worm on a hook, but you might catch something, you know? Go make them wiggle and watch what happens. You'll see people rise to your occasion. You'll say, I want racing red and I want it to be really cool, but I am not poisoning kids. And you can say, I want tires that just burn right off because I got torque. But when I burn my rubber, I don't want any lead stabilizers out there. You can do that. Bill McDonough is co-author of Cradle to Cradle, our guest here at Climate One. We are at the last question and last quick question, last quick answer, please. Hi, Bill. Anthony Rabbits from Google. Uh, I'm wondering if you go and pick up a Snickers bar, you can read on the wrapper exactly what's in it. 
how come we can't expect that of carpet manufacturers and other manufacturers, and what's proprietary about that that's different? You know, no one's copied a Snickers bar yet. I think we'll see that change. That's part of what our institute's about. We want this transparent. We want to, if you're going to sell us something, tell us what it is. I think we have the right to know. And it's a design assignment that is exquisite. And I don't know, you know, I have, I've only met one CEO that terrified me. She was uh, CEO of a toy company. And um, I have, but other than her, I have, I have never, I have never met one CEO or designer whoever says, after they hear what we're doing and get access to our tools, says, you know what? Give it to me, toxic. But Not Shaw Carp- one. Shaw Carpet could disclose now, right? Sure. Why don't they? Um, they will. Okay. Once the vehicle is available. See, the thing is, we, we've got to be coherent as we go forward. We have to be in a defined system. If you just start throwing information out there without context, you're an idiot. There's no system, right? So if you look at the regulations on a Snickers bar, it's because somebody has created a context in which they're reporting. I think it's fair. We should absolutely say that. Tell us what you're selling us. That's fair. I mean, why should we be sold undefined things? We didn't... We didn't buy a rubber duck to make our kids sick and change their hormones. That's not fair. Wow. It's just a question of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Bill McDonough, co-author of Cradle to Cradle, and co-founder of the Cradle to Cradle Product Innovation Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today.